As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Beat Physician Burnout Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Deanna Larson, internal medicine hospitalist and physician burnout life coach. I want this podcast to be your burnout Bible with topics to include anything and everything related to burnout. If you want to learn about burnout, prevent it, or overcome it, this is the place for you. I do want to give a disclaimer that the information and opinions shared here are for information and educational purposes only. They do not serve as medical or professional advice. They do not represent any medical or professional institution or organization. If you are truly ready to take control of your life and put these tools into actions, I am here to help. I have a free consultation call for any physician who is looking into coaching. Please sign up for a free consult in the link below. Episode number eight. First, I want to remind you that you can get one hour of CME just by listening to this podcast. All you have to do is click on the link to my website and each episode will have a little accordion section and you just click on the CME link and register and answer two simple questions. It's actually just reflection questions about a way that you would use the podcast in your day-to-day practice and then you can get credit. The second thing I want to tell you about is I am offering a free group coaching session every weekend, and you can find out about that if you're on my email list. You can also join my Facebook page, Deanna Larson MD, and I'm putting information about on that. It tends to be either Saturday mornings or Sunday afternoons, and anybody can get coached and it's webinar style, so if you do not want anybody to know that you are on there, you do not, you will not be seen. If you want to get coached, you can come on with your face and voice, or if you just want your voice to be on there, you can just do that. You don't have to come on the camera. And sometimes we just coach, other times I bring a little topic and present that, uh, something that's a common in burnout, and some people have sent me in information about something they would like to hear about, and so a lot of times we'll do just a little presentation at the beginning. So please feel free to join me on that. So today we are going to talk about stress, and more specifically, stress today. I've been interested in learning about stress in our modern society, how it is different or changed throughout the decades, and most importantly, how we can prevent it or process it. I found a book that I've been reading, and I want to share some of it with you. It's called Burnout. It's by Emily and Amelia Nagasaki. Honestly, I have not been able to get past the first chapter called The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. Every time I start to go on to the next chapter, I want to go back and reread this one. It has so much great information, and I feel like I just need to share it with you. So based on the title, Burnout, you can guess the entire book is about burnout. It is, however, not specific to physicians. 
I love this quote. Dread is anxiety on steroids. And I think a lot of us feel so much dread today in medicine as physicians. Dread about going to work, dread about how we're going to get through the day. And they describe this as dread being the accumulation of anxiety from stress day after day after day from stress that just never ends. And many of our jobs today have stress that we just really can't get rid of. I think we're all familiar with having a single stressful day, but what really happens when it's repeated over and over and you feel like there's no end in sight? Sometimes the stressors are not even directly related to our job. As a physician, I think this probably sounds familiar, and much of our job is really unrelated to being a clinician, such as paperwork, administrators, insurance companies. The book gives the example of how a teacher may be more stressed by administrators and the paperwork and actually enjoy teaching the children. The next thing I want to make sure is that we differentiate between the stress and the stressor. Because dealing with the stress is a completely different process than dealing with the things that cause the stress or the stressor. So the stressor is what causes our stress. Stressors activate our stress response system in our body to a potential threat. Often we cannot get rid of the stressor. We can't go into work and wish away a toxic boss. We can't suddenly get rid of administrators. Stressors can be external or internal. External stressors are more recognizable. This is work, money, our family. Internal stressors are often vaguer. Self-criticism, body image, memories, or the unknown future. Anything that you can see, hear, smell, touch, taste, or imagine that could harm you can trigger your body's stress response. Our stress response is the neurological, physiological, and hormonal shift that has evolved in our body when we encounter a threat to help us survive, hopefully. The book offers a few of these, and as physicians, we know there are many, many more. Increased blood pressure and heart rate to get more blood to our muscles so we can run. Decreased pain sensitivity, focused attention on the short term, and other organs are actually deprioritized, such as digestion and immune system. The main goal is still all of the body responses that you think of if you were being chased by a lion. This complex multi-organ response from our fantastic body still has the same goal from decades ago, to move oxygen and fuel into your muscles so that you can escape from a lion. So let's continue to play this out as you would have in the past. You run from the lion. Basically, there's two outcomes. You die or you escape. So let's say you survive. You run back into your village with the lion chasing you and you shout for help. All of your friends and family come out and help you kill the lion and you're saved. You are so grateful to be alive. You start to relax knowing that you are in your safe place again. The village cooks a lot of the lion and has a communal feast. You bury the parts of the lion that can't be used in an honoring ceremony. You may give thanks to the lion for its sacrifice Maybe even a lion's claw is made into a necklace that you can now wear around your neck. You are with the people you love. You can take a deep breath, relax, and know that you are safe. This entire process is called completing the stress response cycle. It is more than just escaping from the lion. The lion is just the stressor. Just because you've dealt with the stressor doesn't mean that you've dealt with the stress itself. 
So suppose that you just do away with the lion. Suppose that you're running away from the lion and suddenly it gets struck by lightning and it's killed. But you haven't automatically just relaxed and become peaceful, right? Your body is still in fight or flight. So there's more to completing the stress response cycle than just doing away with the stressor. This author proposes that your body needs to actively do something to signal that you are safe for the chemicals and hormones to shift into relaxation. I feel that physiologically, eventually this would happen, but I think it is such an exciting and curious way to think about our stress. In the modern day, and even in coaching, we tend to try to use our intellect and thoughts to convince us. We say to ourselves, wait, you're safe now, calm down. I do think there is a value in the way that we talk to ourselves, but possibly our body needs to also do something in combination to help us process our stress and maybe process it faster. I've never really thought about it this way before. The other thing the book talks about is how different stress is today. There are no wild animals in your place of employment, but there may be a jerk. The jerk may not be able to kill you, but they continually say and do jerky things to you every day. And you're supposed to act professional and pleasant. You certainly can't jump over the table or punch them in the face. But your body may still trigger the same stress response if you feel that your job is threatened. And often this kind of stress happens day after day after day. Think about the possible physiological damage to our bodies from chronic activated stress responses. Even if we only think of the cardiovascular system with elevated blood pressure, we know hypertension increases the risk of stroke, cardiovascular disease, and so many other things. And this is just one organ system. We know how many chronic diseases this could possibly lead to. When we try to ignore or suppress our stress response, we end up walking around with decades of incomplete stress response cycles, and the authors call this getting stuck in the stress. And here are some examples. The first one is when a chronic stressor keeps you in chronic stress. If you have chronic stress from your job every day that you really can't get away from, even if you find a way in the evening to complete the stress cycle, such as running or dancing, you do feel better afterward, but unfortunately you go back to the same stress the next day and the cycle begins again. We are stuck in a stress-activating situation. This is not always necessarily bad, but sometimes the amount of stress outpaces our capacity to process it. The second one is when our brain activates a stress response and we can't do the reaction because of the social appropriateness required today in our society. If we're really anxious or upset during a meeting and our stress response tells us to run, well, we're in a meeting. We can't just run. So we have to politely smile and hold all of our feelings inside. Sometimes people in the world also tell us that we're wrong for how we're feeling. I'm sure in medicine, we've all heard that it's not professional for us to stand up for ourselves. So next, we're going to talk about ways that we can um, process our stress. So remember running from the lion? Of course, exercise and physical activity is the single most efficient strategy for completing the stress response cycle. Anything that moves your body enough to get you breathing deeply for 20 to 60 minutes a day on most days. 
Why? Basically, we need to recreate the activity that tells your body and brain that you have successfully run away and escaped the lion. And now you're safe to live happily ever after. In your body's language, you have to tell your body, which means moving your muscles, breathing deeply, working up a sweat, all the same things. So what about those of us who do not enjoy physical activity? And I have to admit it, this is me. Um, When I exercise, it is not because I enjoy it. It is purely because I know that I should. And guess what? There are alternatives. So we're going to go through these. They talk about muscle relaxation techniques and activities, and there's two examples. The first one is a really simple one to start with. All you have to do is stand up from your chair, take a deep breath, tense all of your muscles for 20 seconds, exhale out, and shake out your muscles. And this really doesn't sound too awful, but it's not as good as exercise. And here's another example of a muscle tension relaxation technique that is given in the book. And this one is really fascinating to me. And I searched through the references to find more information, and I couldn't find anything. It combines this progressive muscle relaxation with visualization. I've never seen anything like this before. I Googled it, couldn't find anything, and I'm actually going to reach out to the author to see if I can get more information. Because it is really fascinating to me, and I think it's a a really unique opportunity. So, and, And the author says that they use this in everybody who really just won't or doesn't like exercise or people who have disabilities who can't exercise. So here's the way they describe it. You lie in bed, and you progressively tense and release every muscle in your body, starting with your feet and ending up with your face. You tense them hard, hard, hard for a slow count of 10 and even spend some extra time in the places where you usually carry your stress. And while you do that, you visualize really clearly and viscerally what it feels like to beat the living daylights out of whatever stressor you've encountered. You must imagine it very clearly. You should notice your body responding, like your heart rate beating faster, your fist clenching, until you really satisfy the sense of victory. And some of the things that happen while you're doing the muscle tension activity can be, it can range from waves of frustration, anger, tears, body shaking. It's supposed to represent the release of the stress response cycles that have built up over time. I know it sounds a little woo-woo, but I am interested in more information. So I'm sure that a lot of people have heard the progressive muscle release exercise, and I've even heard of visualization techniques, but I've never really heard them together like this. Almost all of the visualization techniques are something in about making a peaceful place, you know, like in the ocean or a happy place. I've never seen them combined together like this with you actually trying to recreate the a person or the thing that caused your stressor and having it be more of a physiological um, increase in your response less than an actual relaxation. And I also wanted to mention this. I, I have learned a Vedic type of meditation. And when I was learning this, they talked about the same thing. They also believe that when you undergo a specific stressor, that there is a part that is left over in your body. 
And when I learned it, they used the example of being in a car accident. Your body and all of your senses remember that danger for the future, so something that you can look out for. Sometimes your body associates things that don't necessarily correlate, but just happen to be going on at the same time. So let's say you were driving in your car during the accident and a particular song was on the radio when you had an accident and coffee was in your cup holder and your brain associated the sound of the song and the smell of the coffee. This really had nothing to do with you being in the car accident. It was just random coincidence. But your brain associates all of the senses involved in the accident as potential warning signs for the future. And the things that really may help you might have been seeing the car out of the corner of your eye or hearing the sirens or hearing screeching brakes. But your brain kind of misfiles the coffee and the song on the radio. And the meditation instructors believe that since you have these stored associations that you may have micro stresses in the future when the song plays or you smell coffee and your brain thinks of this as a potential threat. And they also feel that these stored stressors are cleared out during your body during meditation and believe that this is one of the reasons that people who meditate regularly are more, I guess, Zen for no other better term. And I've always had a little bit of trouble buying this with my science-trained mind, but there are definitely some similarities in these trains of thought that I think are interesting. So we're going to go on to another way of clearing the stress is breathing. And I think we all have seen this many times. People who are anxious, we tell them to take a deep breath. A lot of meditations follow the breath. Um, And so you want to have deep, slow breaths to down-regulate the stress response. Breathing triggers your parasympathetic system. It's best when the exhalation is long and slow and goes all the way as far as you can go to the end of the breath. Breathing is a very gentle way to start, but it's probably not going to handle a very challenging stressor. Personally, I have a lot of difficulty with breathing exercises. I tend to hyperventilate. It, it can be really distracting to me when I try to follow my breath very much. I can do one or two slow breaths, but after that, it really becomes distracting to me. The book talks about a very simple exercise. Breathe in for a slow count of five. Hold your breath and count to five. Exhale for a slow count of ten. And then pause for five seconds and then do it again. Repeat three times. So that's pretty simple. Um, Number three in their list of how to process your stress is positive social interaction. This is really interesting. I give my daughter a little bit of crap about this because she hates chit chat. She hates small talk. And most of us think that we'll have a better plane ride if the person sitting next to us just leaves us alone. But studies have actually shown that people experience greater well-being if they have a polite, casual chit-chat with their seatmate. Relaxed but friendly social interaction can reassure your brain that it is a safe world. And... It doesn't always have to be chit-chat. It can also be just offering some nice words to a stranger, such as have a nice day. And number four is laughter. This is one of the ones that I love so much. I love to laugh all the time. And they found that laughing together or even just reminiscing about the times that you've laughed together can increase your relationship satisfaction. I love that. 
And you know the laugh that I'm talking about? It's the it's the the crazy deep almost make you pee your pants belly laughs. This is what we're talking about. So please do that. The fifth one they talk about is affection. So affection from a beloved person that you like, respect, and trust. Uh, They give some examples, and I'm going to warn you, these are a little odd. The first one is what they call the six-second kiss. And you kiss your partner for six seconds. So I'm just going to make sure that's one kiss for six seconds. This seems potentially awkward, but the theory is that it's far too long to kiss someone that you resent, dislike, feel unsafe with. It requires you to deliberately notice that you actually like this person, trust this person, feel affection for them. And by noticing these things in your brain, it tells your body the same thing. Seems a little weird. The second one is called the 20-second hug. Okay, so again, 20 seconds is obviously with someone that you love and trust. And it is a little bit different than the way we usually hug. Typically, when we hug someone, we both lean in and sort of support each other so that if the other person pulled back, they would sort of fall over. In this hug, they recommend that both people stand on their own and support their own weight and then just put their arms around each other. And studies have shown that this can lower your blood pressure, lower your heart rate, improve mood, and increase oxytocin. And again, it's sending the message to your body and your brain that you are safe and basically have escaped the lion. The one that did kind of resonate with me in the affection part of the book was that animals, pets, can be used to complete the cycle with affection. And I feel that we see this all the time, people who love their pets more than anything else in the world. So um, petting your animals and just being with them with affection can help process the uh, stress cycle. Number six is crying. So where are my criers out there? I have always noticed such a feeling of relief after crying, and everybody makes fun of me. My kid thinks I'm nuts, and I even have my favorite crying movie list. And for some reason, it has just always helped me. And they have shown in this book that the the movies actually help you go through the emotions with the character and allows your body to go through it too. The story kind of guides you through the emotional cycle. Isn't that amazing? And so way to go. If, if crying helps you feel better, go ahead. And so the last one is what they call creative expression. And there are so many options here. Sports, painting, music, theater, all sorts of different things. But the goal is to create or even encourage big emotions. So I'm going to give the example of the one that rings the truest to me, and that is music, songs. And as a coach, almost everybody in my community thinks that writing and journaling is the best thing in the world. And I have to tell you, it just this just doesn't do it for me. I don't like my handwriting. I don't like reading back the things that I've written. And I'm not saying that journaling is bad. A lot of people love it, but it just doesn't work for me. And this is what I loved, I think, the most about this chapter is it gave so many options. There's something for everyone. So back to songs. Think about the first few months when you're falling in love with someone. Every love song seems like it's speaking and is written just for you. Same with sad songs after you have a breakup. Who has a breakup playlist, a workout 
playlist or like I have a somehow prepare me for work playlist. I have a song that got me through my pregnancy, through my dad's death. I even have a song that feels like it was written about my coaching journey. And it's the lyrics that lead me through my feeling in a musical way and give me a chance to move through whatever big emotion I'm having. The book calls this a nice loophole that allows us to be emotional in a politically correct way. And remember, whatever it is, it needs to help you create the required emotion. Whatever it is for you, art, literature, music, anything, take advantage of this loophole to process your emotions. So that's what I took out of this chapter, and I hope you enjoy it. I'm going to link it in the, in my, on my page so that if you want to read more, I promise I'm going to make it out of this chapter into the next one, and we'll share more soon. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. A Huda Media Production.